0: As we now enter the deep dark of the off season, I discuss, divulge, and dissect a situational Trubisky study I recently performed, and then rifle through an elongated Bears mailbag. It's all coming at you on this week's episode of Bear With Me. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Bear With Me, a Chicago Bears podcast hosted by yours truly, Robert Schmitz, on this Windy City Gridiron podcasting network. Now, while normally I like to do this as a post-game review, we haven't had a game or anything really to review in quite some time Outside of free agency in the draft, which, now that I think about it, those are pretty big things, but nothing game related. With that said, we are now entering the even deeper, darker period of the offseason where there is almost nothing to report about. That said, that hasn't stopped the old Schmitz curse from kicking in. And for those who haven't been following, I have a nasty habit, and this has really popped up probably five or six times at minimum over the 25 episodes that I've now recorded, where as soon as I talk about a topic, the Bears go and do something to make whatever I said obsolete. In this case, I'll just bring up the fact that Eddie Pinheiro, the new kicker that the Bears traded for, was traded for the day after I recorded my show that went through every single position, including kicker. For what it's worth, a couple of quick thoughts. I think the Pinheiro trade was a good one. It is a trade with almost no downside, given that it's a 2021 seventh rounder, basically worth absolutely nothing in terms of real-time draft capital, not to mention it's a conditional seventh rounder at that. If Pinheiro isn't the Bears' kicker for four games, he has to be active for four games, the Bears get the pick back. I see no downside whatsoever. The kid looks like he's got a solid leg. There's footage of him making an 81-yarder, and while I'll be the first to tell you that I think that looking at practice 81-yarders is a lot like Steph Curry's like 77 or whatever threes in a row that he made in practice, meaning... It's worth nothing. It's practice. It's neat to see that this guy's got a leg when, from everything I'm hearing, none of those eight kickers from the big kicking fiasco over the weekend last weekend really showed us much of anything. If Pinero's the guy, that's great. If not, we get the pick back. So I see no downside with this. That said, there's really not a lot of other news to talk about. Now, this left me with a lot of free time. So, for those of you who don't know, Uh, You can find an article called Situational Study on uh, Windy City Gridiron right around now, and if you haven't seen it, it's also a Twitter thread, where I charted out and analyzed every single one of Trubisky's third down and red zone plays to determine how the Chicago Bears' young quarterback, Mitchell Trubisky, plays in those settings – All of this came out of one idea. I asked myself, how can we get different perspectives on Trubisky? A lot of us watched every game this season. We've all got a lot of opinions. We know the kid grew from week one to week 17 in pretty remarkable fashion, all things told. But what does that tell us about how he performs in big situations? Obviously, Aaron Rodgers, just to use an example, as much as we may dislike him, that guy is money in the red zone. He's really good on third down, too, because that's key. That's a common thing among great quarterbacks. We all want Trubisky to be a great quarterback, so I wanted to take a look at his red zone and end zone situational play and see how the guy stacked up. Now, I highly recommend that you actually go and check out the article to see the base points, but in case you're more of a podcasting listening person or you've seen the article and just want a little bit more, I've dug up the chart now to kick off the show as I can comb through it and tell you a little bit more that I wasn't actually able to share in the thread. So let's start with his red zone play, and to make sure that we're all on the same page, I'm going to go ahead and reiterate the conclusion that I found, which is basically that the longer that a passing play lasted, the longer that the snap to throw time for Trubisky took, which again is literally when Whitehair snaps it, Trubisky catches it. How long did it take him to throw it? The longer that that took, the worse his plays got. Generally speaking, he was best on anything under two seconds. Still pretty good at anything between two and three seconds. In fact, that's where ten of his 18 red Zone touchdowns came from, but anything past three seconds, the guy threw one touchdown all season. Me personally, I got to say I found this astoundingly interesting, especially as I was researching it. So I went through, and just to be clear, to make sure we're all on the same page, and if you want access to the chart, feel free to email me. There should be an email attached to my Winnie C the Gridiron profile. But anyways, uh, as I went through, I charted his attempts, his completions, his yards, his touchdowns, and whether throws were interceptable or not. If they were, I counted them as interceptions because, let's be honest, Trubisky had tons of plays throughout this year where he'd throw the ball. It would slap a defender in the hands like he should have caught it, but he dropped it. I really hate taking that away from the defender when we're evaluating a quarterback, especially when we're trying to be a little bit hard on that quarterback to determine new data, to find those new perspectives. I want to give him those interceptions as if to say, okay, that was a bad decision. You deserve to be punished for it, instead of saying, no worries. He dropped it, so you're off the hook. You guys understand what I'm talking about. The most important thing that I saw personally, while... As I'm sure anybody who saw the article did see, uh, so Trubisky threw 8.5 interceptable throws in the red zone. That's not good enough. That .5, by the way, if you're wondering where that came from, I counted a, a kind of crappy Gouagi play uh, as half of a interceptable throw because it was interceptable, but it was also catchable. So I figured, you know, half each way. Half of a catch, half an interception, a little bit dangerous, but you understand how it goes. The most important thing that I found was that he threw about seven of those interceptable throws in the first nine games of the th- of his season. And then in the last five, he only threw uh, one or two by the looks of it. Yeah, that's one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, so he got through the last seven games with only one interceptable end zone throw. And the first seven games, it looks like he had seven of those interceptable throws, seven and a half to be specific. And I think that's really important. It pairs with the growth narrative that we know And frankly, I've proven myself in the uh, January Trubisky article and study that I did. It's good to see that Trubisky grew, especially in this area, because it was an area of real weakness for him. Bears fans, I know we have constantly gone back and forth between trying to prove or disprove whether or not Mitch Trubisky is a one read quarterback. And this year in the red zone, he sure looked like it. If his first read wasn't open, he didn't know what to do with it. The longer that he waited, even though he has this phenomenal mobility capability, that he can just, you know, we've seen it, spin out of the way of tons of would-be tacklers and end up with all that space that you've seen on elite quarterback highlights. Big Ben, uh, Aaron Rodgers, like these guys have been wheeling out, finding somebody in the end zone and bang, they hit him. Trubisky was missing that last part where, where he did not bang and hit him. He would throw the ball and often it would go straight to a defender that you looked at and I know I did this throw your hands at the screen and say Trubisky what are you doing hopefully he irons that out it sounds like Matt Nagy in a bunch of various press conferences has talked about exactly this issue that Mitch needs to get better at off script play certainly in the end zone and red zone so that's nice to hear that me and Matt Nagy are coming to the same conclusion but I do want to make us all aware Trubisky struggled in the red zone. He struggled whenever he had to be a quarterback and not just a ball thrower, which is something that I know I have criticized the heck out of Jared Goff for, so I can't be super nice to Trubisky here. At least Trubisky is athletic. At least we trust Metinagy and that he's got a lot of room to grow. Goff is now entering, I believe, his third year in McVay's system. Fourth year's an overall quarterback, so I tend to think that his growth is going to level off pretty soon. We can hope for a big bump from Trubisky this year due to the Andy Reid offense. It'll be really interesting to see how his red zone play improves or doesn't improve. sure hope it'll improve because if it does, he's going to get a lot better. Another thing that I saw Trubisky had some serious trouble with was throwing into the end zone. I said this in the article. You may hear that phrase a lot today, Uh, but he had 22 throws that reached the end zone while in the red zone. So he's targeting the end zone from the red zone. I know that sounds a little confusing. 22 attempts, only seven completions. Now, if you count his interceptable throws, that is a passer rating of 44.1. And if you don't count them, it's to 61.74. Neither of those are good, obviously. Now, I gotta tell you, I don't actually know and have an accurate comparison for whether that is better or worse than common quarterbacks. I don't know how they do throwing into the end zone. I would imagine it's hard, obviously, but at the same time, there's only so many places you can go with the ball, and you get a whole lot of credit as far as the passer rating stuff goes for all the touchdowns that you score in that case, so I would tend to think that it would even out if you can do better than what is less than a 33%. I think when I did the math, I reached thirty-one percent Eight 4%, which obviously is not a good completion percentage when throwing into the end zone. We'll need to see Trubisky get better at this. One thing that I saw from all the film was that he seemed to get nervous. Now, I personally think that given he was a one-year starter at North Carolina and he's now a two-year starter with the Bears, two different offenses, three different offenses if you count that college year, Trubisky might not have a whole lot of experience throwing to or near the end zone. I would believe it if you told me that this kid, who obviously wants to be great, he obviously wants to win for the Bears, he's kind of getting inside his own head when he spots somebody and says, that's a touchdown if I do this right, that he gets nervous, he gets choked up, because you see him miss a lot of these throws. A couple to Anthony Miller, yeah, I know, Anthony Miller probably could have had 11 touchdowns if Trubisky was like really on fire throughout this year, which is crazy to say because the kid's a rookie. I saw a couple with Tariq Cohen, whether it's a rainbow throw, which is admittedly tough, or just a leftward rollout that he needs to hit. Trubisky missed a bunch, um, a bunch meeting, probably about five touchdowns that came what looked like from nervousness where he was out of the pocket. Nobody was going to hit Trubisky. It was just a matter of making the throw and he didn't do it. We need to see him get better at that. We all know he can throw on the run. I think the more he's able to swallow his nerves and operate the offense, the better the Bears will be, obviously. Obviously. I think that this year two jump will be really big for Trubisky. I'm really hoping that we'll get to see a lot of good out of him. Now you may be wondering, Robert, why are you being so optimistic about Trubisky? Well, it's primarily because of third down. And now, there's a lot to say and not a lot to say, but I'll try to cover this as fast as I can here. So, on third down, Trubisky was generally money. I divided his season up into four quarters, so the first four games, the next four games, so on and so forth. Uh, In his first four games, he was not very good, 32%, if uh, I've done the math correctly, which I have. But after that, the guy basically turned into a third down conversion machine. I mean, he goes from 32.5%, to 48.84% in the second seasonal quarter, 50% in the third seasonal quarter, fifty-two percent uh, in that fourth seasonal quarter, which then drops to 46% if you count his postseason appearance, in which he only went two for 12, or no, it's three for 12, and that's with discounting penalties. So any penalty I threw out, but I included his scrambles, of which he was 12 for 19. But anyways, to calm down on the numbers, the most important thing I want to talk about on this pod, because I don't think it got enough air time in the article is the fact that he shouldn't be as good as he is in the fourth quarter on third down if he's the bad quarterback that so many say he is now if Trubisky didn't quote unquote have it I would expect him to be good in the first quarter a little bit less good in the second quarter a little bit less good in the third and then outright bad in the fourth why here's why Nagy, as a great offensive coordinator, should be able to scheme a certain degree of his third down conversions. Not all of them, of course, but some of them. Uh certainly through running the ball, through making sure guys are wide open, running different pick plays to try to get people there, but there's a point where you need your quarterback to actually be able to deliver the football, and certainly by the fourth quarter, the other defense has some things that they can watch for and they can start to bear down on any quarterback, no pun intended there, of course. That isn't playing up to standard but Trubisky being good in the fourth quarter especially in that second third and fourth seasonal quarter because in the first seasonal quarter he was only one for 11 in the fourth I know shocking that's that's not very good. Just is that that shows me that Trubisky has the clutch gene we need him to have. If he wasn't able to perform in those settings in that fourth quarter, this would be a a big cause of worry in my book. But clearly, when the Bears needed him, he stepped up and delivered. To make sure that we're clear, he was uh, 5 for 8 in the second seasonal quarter, 4 for 7 in the third, and 7 for 10. Really, really great in that fourth seasonal quarter. Like This is good stuff to hear. Trubisky came through on third and fourth down when he needed it, especially in that fourth quarter. This is the mark of a killer. There's no way to be a good NFL quarterback. Not really if you're not good on third down. And so the fact that over this 162 play sample size, Trubisky clearly showed us that he has the goods, that he can deliver the stuff on third down, I think that's really really great. It gives me a lot of warm fuzzies, that's for sure, going into, uh going into 2019, I think Trubisky can give us a lot of good memories that he can lead this offense well, and I'll be really interested to see if he takes the jump that so many of us hope he will. He obviously has the tools. He clearly has the support system around him. Ryan Pace has done a knockout job hiring all the right people, and I mean that. Like, I want to be somebody, just so all of you fans know, who's as objective as possible, who will look you in the eyes and say, Trey Burton, a little bit of disappointment this year and you'll hear a little bit more about that in the mailbag but the point is Trubisky didn't play very well at all in the first quarter of the season but as he grew, he got a lot better. His uh, play on third down shows us that he has the stuff, in my opinion, because his stark jump from going 13 of 40 in the first seasonal quarter up to 21 for 43 in the second, 10 for 20 in that third seasonal quarter because he did get hurt, and then 20 for 38 in that fourth one when the Bears needed him. Week 14, week 15, week 16, week 17, the Bears needed to win games. They won all four of them, and he was great in those third down situations, not to mention when the Bears desperately needed Trubisky that last minute he was able to drive the team down and give us what should be a makeable field goal, but we're not going to talk about the double doink. Anyways, that's a lot on Trubisky, that's a whole bunch of my thoughts, and while I'd love to go into him more, we've got a mailbag to get to, and speaking of, let's dive right into it. We'll start first with the question I was alluding to earlier. David Ronsberg asks What are the chances that Trey Burton will eventually live up to his contract? And while I'd love to be optimistic on this, my answer is almost none. It's not that I think Trey Burton's bad outright. I basically think that the guy was a replacement-level Nagy tight end, and he had pretty good touchdown numbers. I believe that they placed him top 10, maybe top 5 in tight ends. I don't have the numbers on hand, see, but he didn't end up being a Zach Ertz, Travis Kelsey totaled difference maker as much as he was a really nice piece that fit well in an offense. Kelsey and Ertz are paid, they are aimed, and their offense is schemed around them being either the first or second best weapon in the offense, and I can go ahead and tell you right now that Allen Robinson... Tariq Cohen and Anthony Miller were probably bigger weapons or at least as big of weapons as Trey Burton was. Now, while it was neat having him run up the seam to catch those balls, there's a certain school of thought that would say a whole lot of those guys could do it. The question becomes, how much could somebody like Ben Broniker have actually replaced? And when my answer is eh, maybe half, 75% of that, that's not exactly what you want to hear out of a guy that's being paid like a top five tight end in the NFL. Burton has a really, really, really uphill battle to actually make that contract worth it. I think it's fair to say Trey Burton is paid and is being paid, frankly overpaid a little bit, to have come to Chicago specifically to be Nagy's U tight end so that while we figure out who our next U tight end is going to be, I'm assuming it's going to be somebody from the 2020 draft, we've got somebody in place that is able to fulfill that role and allow Nagy's Offense to move forward. If we didn't have one, our offense would look a lot different. Even just having the option is infinitely better. Like having somebody at that position that is even just competent and does his job well enough, like Burton does. Is great and well worth the $8 million in Nagy's eyes. But in the world of positional value and is he playing like a top-five tight end, I understand where fans are coming from, and I would tend to think he is never going to be statistically worth that contract. Just not going to happen. Moving on to a second question, Paul H. asks, When does the Daniels-Whitehair switch happen? If it's me calling it, Never. I like it when offensive linemen stay where they are, and while Daniels came out as one of the highest regarded centers in the NFL, Cody Whitehair has slowly taken the mantle of being a Pro Bowl level center. I think that's good. If the Bears really think, they absolutely have to switch these guys. First of all, again, I think that's a bad idea. Whitehair's gotten switched around a lot. I would much prefer it if he could just maintain his positioning on the offensive line, but they basically need to do it as soon as possible. Guard and center, I don't personally know the differences. That's a much better question for Lester Wiltfong. But the less switching you can do on these guys, the better. If we can go into the next season, 2019, with an offensive line of from left to right. Charles Leno, James Daniels, Cody Whitehair, Kyle Long, and Bobby Massey, and keep that line in place for as much of the season as possible, health permitting, that's ideal to me. We were great last year. As Jonathan Wood has told me many times, that when the Bears had that offensive line combo, they were, and I'm not messing around with this, the most efficient offense in the NFL. That's not something I want to play with. Don't throw a stick of dynamite into something that's definitely working. I don't think they need to switch these guys. I hope that they don't, but if they actually have to or want to switch these guys, switch them as soon as possible. Our third question on the podcast, Nick Miller asks, There seems to be a sense that Taylor Gabriel may be gone after this season. If that happens, do you feel his replacement is on the roster? If so, who? Why? Or will the Bears take a shot at a wide receiver in the heavily loaded 2020 draft? Now, I got to tell you, I can't predict who the Bears are going to draft because I really believe that especially in 2020, they'll look to grab an edge rusher to replace Leonard Floyd. Yeah, I know. I said it. Uh, And they'll probably look for their next tight end of the future. But outside of that, they won't really need a lot. They'll need a good bunch of depth players, guys to develop to eventually replace other guys. But I tend to think that we're not going into 2020 with a ton of holes on the roster. That said, I get the impression the Bears want to ditch as many expensive contracts as they can, and with the drafting of Riley Ridley, who in many people's boards was a top 70 football player in the 2019 draft, I tend to think they are going to use Ridley to push him off the roster. Whether it's Ridley or Wims or especially if Emmanuel Hall sticks, we're going to have enough quote-unquote fast guys, to be able to do whatever we want on offense. One thing that makes me curious personally, I'm curious as to whether Nagy would tell you he needs a speed option like Gabriel in the offense. Allen Robinson isn't a blazer, neither is Anthony Miller. Both of these guys are phenomenal receivers. Taylor Gabriel is known for his speed, though I'll tell you what, he did most of his best work on third down, in my opinion, being an open and available target for Mitch Trubisky to convert big downs on, often on second down too. The guy displayed really, really tight hands that really helped the Bears. So it makes me wonder, do the Bears need that speed? I mean, they want it. Don't get me wrong, but do they need it? If they went into a season with Anthony Miller as the number two or maybe even the number one, depending on how well the guy plays, Allen Robinson next to him as if he's the 1A or as the clear number one, and then Riley Ridley or Javon Wims as the number three, you'd have two bigger guys, no matter whether it's Wims or Ridley, and you'd have a smaller guy in Miller. None of them would be exceptionally fast, but all of them would be phenomenal route runners. Would Nagy look at that and say, that's okay? I don't know, but what I do think is that Taylor Gabriel's 7 million dollar deal is a little bit too expensive, and they'll want to get rid of it. So I guess, to sum all that rambling up, I think that Taylor Gabriel is a great Bears player. Okay, great's probably overselling it. I think he's a good and useful Bears player that does have a replacement probably on the roster because they're going to ditch him. Whether they find a new person to then also replace his spot better than a Riley Ridley or a Javon Wims, I can't predict the future that well. I do think that there's enough talent in the Bears' wide receiver position right now that if Gabriel gets hurt or he does get cut at the end of this next year, that the Bears won't suffer too much from an offensive perspective. And again, that comes from somebody who's saying, I like Taylor Gabriel, I think he's useful to his offense, and frankly, good on him for going out and earning that money after being an undrafted free agent. I just think the Bears are loaded with talent at wide receiver. Most of our guys are a cut above replacement level. That's as much as you could ask for. Kudos to you, Ryan Pace, for making that happen. From here, we'll enter a bit of a rapid-fire section because we've got a couple of questions with what I think are fairly fast answers. So Nicholas King asks, Is Eddie Jackson healthy going into camp? We missed him in the playoffs. (laughs) I sure hope so. The guy only had a sprained ankle, and while it did hold him out of the playoffs, which was too dang bad because we absolutely missed him, if he's not healthy going into training camp, then that ankle must have disintegrated because I don't know how a strain would still be affecting him that many months after the fact. Matthew Ford and uh, Big Hank both asked similar questions. Matthew Ford asks, who's going to have a better Bears tenure, Shane McClellan or Matthew Betts? And Big Hank asks, considering the flexibility of the UDFA Betts and his quickness and solid pass rushing moves, do you think he has an outside chance of being on the 53-man roster after training camp? And the gist is, like, let me answer who I think Betts is before trying to attack both of these questions. I find Matthew Betts a scary thing to hope for. Now that might be a little foreign to a lot of Bears fans, but here's the gist of where I'm trying to go. Statistically speaking, an incredible number of NFL productive edge rushers come out of the first three rounds of the draft. Very explicitly the first three rounds of the draft at that. Rounds four through seven have almost no hit rate whatsoever, which leads me to believe that a UDFA like Matthew Betts, even though his film looks really neat against Canadian offensive line is going to have trouble in the NFL. I need to see it in training camp to believe it. I don't want to sound like I hate this guy or I think that he sucks or anything like that. I'm sure he's great. And again, all his film looks like is good stuff against players that, well, probably won't make NFL rosters either. So we'll have to see him go up against guys like Massey and Leno and, you know, actual starting NFL linemen before we crown him anything at all. Now, to be clear, Kylie Fitz isn't very good either. So maybe he takes his spot on the 53. But Shea McClellan did have a couple of sacks and played a lot of snaps and made a lot of tackles both as an inside linebacker and as an outside linebacker. Not to mention Shea McClellan did injure Aaron Rodgers on one of the bigger sacks of his career uh, which helped the Bears win that game. So while I'm never going to cheer for somebody to go cause injury, I will say that Shea McClellan made a big, bigger impact on the Bears than we might think even though he was a massive overdraft in the first round he left an impression on Bears fans and I'm not certain Matthew will it'll be neat if we find that third edge rusher maybe even a second edge rusher like if he can ever do anything at all even in the rotation that'd be incredible considering that we found him as a UDFA I just think that that's a lot to ask for and want to wait until training camp before I crown him with almost anything at all And our final question of the podcast comes from Jeff Brekus himself of Bears Over Beers, also on the Windy City Gridiron podcasting channel, and he asks, What's my favorite fake swear word, and can I use it in a sentence? Now, I don't know if you follow me enough on Twitter, Windy City Gridiron, or this podcast well enough to know that I've made a commitment to not swearing, or at least trying to swear as little as possible. It's not something that I personally prefer, due to both religious beliefs as well as personal beliefs on how I want to carry myself. You get the idea. But Breckis noticed that in last week's episode, I used borked as if it was a euphemism for, well, let's just say not a particularly nice word that starts with F. I didn't realize that borked has a totally different definition. In fact, let me read that definition for you right now. To bork, It's to obstruct specifically somebody as a candidate for public office through systematic defamation or vilification. Suffice to say, it didn't fit in the context that I was trying to use it. But anyways, to get back to the question, I'll use plenty of southern colloquialisms, namely dadgum, to replace various words that I used to use in an earlier part of my life, but the one that I probably use the most is frickin'. Now, it replaces, obviously, the traditional F word, and to use it in a sentence, it is to say, man, that guy frickin' blew up the other one. Rolls off the tongue, takes the place, nice and easy, uh, but obviously it doesn't hide the ball at all on what you intended to say. I personally have started to prefer to restructure my sentences altogether to say, man, that guy jacked that other guy up, or boy, oh boy, did that linebacker just wreck that running back. But you get the idea. We all use words like that. And as I've attempted to steer away from swear words, I got to tell you, I have had to get creative. Sometimes I'll even just chuck out some random sounds like, boy, he got gungus to there. And I know that's not a word. Obviously, it's not a word but you'd be surprised how often people get the picture without having to mean anything with the random sounds that you say if you're especially when you're talking about some sort of like impact or hit or something that everyone saw it they all knew what it was even if they don't have a word to describe it with but yeah that's all I've got for y'all in this episode, so I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I always enjoy making it. If you like what I have to say or want to hear more thoughts, see more highlights, catch the threads that I make, feel free to follow me at R O B E R T K schmitz on twitter that's robert k schmitz i like to think it's fairly easy to remember and feel free to hit me up on windy city gridiron in the article itself or on twitter about your thoughts on trubisky whether he's doing well whether you think he's doing poorly and needs to step it up or any of the other players that i discussed on this week's mailbag and as always bear fans bear down and thanks so much for bearing with me